Turn again to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, 9 to 15, and 19 to 22. 9 to 15, 2 Timothy 4, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with carpets at Troas on my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Verse 19. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get you before winter. Eubulus greets you. So do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Last words written by the Apostle Paul about the year 64, probably in the Marmotine prison in Rome, written in one of its dungeons, um, perhaps a cave, a hole in the roof, letting the prisoner down on a rope, as grim as that maybe it was, and that there he wrote this letter and expressed his great hope of the future, a crown of righteousness that was to be given to him. And uh, so he ends now his uh, burning theological instructions and moral exhortations and encouragements and warnings to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. And he ends with a few simple requests. And I think we can read these words uh, again and again. There's nothing like them for a minister um, handing over the church he's pastored to another preacher, one human being then dealing with another human being. Now, Paul was an apostle, and as an apostle, he had the gifts of an apostle. No one since the apostle has had such gifts. A few have made fanciful claims to have them, but no one has had them. They were apostolic gifts. You know, he writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. And one of the consequences of, of such gifts then were that the apostle had the gift of the infallible inspiration of uh, the 13 or so letters that he wrote. Um, he was guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write just what God wanted him to write, as God loves the church in Aberystwyth and every congregation and wants all those congregations to be based on the, the foundation of uh, the apostles' teaching. There were other signs he could perform. Remember, Eutychus was sitting in a windowsill on the second floor and Paul was preaching and they were saying, go on, go on, and it was midnight and he succumbed to sleep and he fell out of the window and the people thought as he crashed to the ground he was surely dead. But Paul went and, uh, and, and raised him up. That was a sign of an apostle. There's no one in the world we can send for today who can cure someone who has Alzheimer's or who has Downs. There's no one. But miracles happen all the time. They happen wonderfully. Miracles of grace and then wonderful deliverances. And uh, all of us know of such cases in our congregations, and even in our own personal lives. 
Now, we're not sure how these apostolic gifts worked. It was certainly not true that no Christian ever died in a congregation pastored by Paul or was ill in them. Didn't happen when Jesus, the Son of God, was in Galilee. It wasn't the time for these things. Grave diggers still were busy where Paul was the pastor and where Jesus was the preacher. Because uh, you see here in verse 20 that uh, Paul tells us that there was a friend of his called Trophimus that he left sick in Miletus. He didn't raise him up and heal him. He left him there to recuperate. And we know that he told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake and his many infirmities. He didn't lay his hands on and pray and uh, Timothy was abounding in health for the rest of his life. We learn much through the sicknesses that God permits to remain in our lives. So we're not sure how Paul used and exercises his miraculous gifts, but he did so. I suppose quite unconsciously he did so when he visited and pastored and people were brought to him, or when he wrote these wonderful letters of his. We certainly know that Paul had a flesh and blood existence in, in this world. That he was open to inspection, open to examination. And that in some respects he made a very poor impression on the people that were watching him, especially on his critics. They dismissed him. They said his bodily presence is weak. And his speech is contemptible. He had no charisma like John Wayne entering a western saloon and everyone stops and slowly turns around to see what figure has come into their midst. Paul could slip into a room and you wouldn't notice that it had increased by one more man. And he was no orator as Peter was. There was no rabble-rousing, incessant drumming and bellowing and fanciful trickery in in his communication. He was a man of like passions as we are. He was bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And in these closing verses that have been read twice now in your hearing, then you can see this as clearly as anywhere in the New Testament. He was a man of the same human longings and fears and desires that anybody here possesses. He was a sinner saved by grace. He was dependent, as we are, on the means that God provides for grace coming to us and lifting us and cheering us and strengthening us, enabling us to go on and on in the Christian life. He shows us the parameters of desire and concern that all of us have who live the Christian life. Paul was just like that. Our brother, the best Christian. So firstly, I want you to see how Paul had a need for companionship. He was evidently uh, a people person. There are the names of 17 people that I've just read out to you from this passage of scripture and all except two of them uh, Claudia and Priscilla were men and if you look at the last chapter of Romans then you can see a couple of score of names of Paul who he is greeting or whom he is 
receiving greetings from. And if you read then all the letters and the, and the book of Acts, you will find that there are a hundred people's names that Paul knew and dealt with in different ways. He was no monk. He was not someone who took a, an oath of, of silence and remained in his study. And speedily after being in church, he disappeared off home again. He, he was the world's best letter writer par excellence. It's a good duty on a Sunday afternoon to write a letter to friends. And when he wrote to Timothy here, he told him twice, do your best. To do what? Do your utmost. To do what? In verses 9 and 21, do your best, he says. Well, it was simply to visit Paul. On the first occasion, do your best to come quickly. And on the second occasion, do your best to come before winter. I need to see you soon. Don't wait until the winter comes because there's no sailing. And you've got to sail from Turkey across to Greece and around Greece and across to Rome and make the journey. It'll take you three months to come and see me. It was a tough time for Paul and tough times call for tough friends. So Paul has begun this letter telling Timothy of his affection for him. Remember he says, recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So there was a real bond of love between the older man and the younger man. And now it's at the end of the letter and he turns to this theme again and he says, come quickly and soon. It's not the typical portrait you have of Paul. Um, it's not the typical portrait we have of the great Johns, um, John Knox and John Calvin and John Owen. They are portrayed as rather stern and unaffectionate men. We don't know how wrong we are. We have just enough revealed to us here to understand that we're not dealing with an angel and we are not dealing with a robot. We are dealing with a, a human being. Uh, a man then who loved human companionship. People in the UK are getting used to the fact that they have a new Prime Minister who is a woman. And we pray for her and we notice that she has already been christened by some of the press as the Ice Maiden. The press want touchy-feely people everywhere. In the past decades, we've witnessed this ghastly process of what the world calls humanization. In other words, leaders who fall over themselves to show the so-called softer side, the real, the real them. Politicians tweet endlessly. They elevate the trivial and they trivialize themselves. We're just like you, they're saying, except they have larger expense accounts. The mob bays for more access and more insight into leading figures. And they want preachers who will talk about their children and their families 
and prime ministers who, for a handsome fee, will give 17-page exposés of life with their families and shots of their new babies in Hello! magazine. Show us more, is the cry. The new prime minister is not doing that. There's a certain decorum. When the sheen of what is private and personal is rubbed away, so too is the sheen of respect, and soon eggs will be thrown at them. Now, we are fascinated with the limits of what Paul will write here about himself, that he'll tell us a few things, that he is missing companionship and some creature comforts, and mental stimulus. So far he will go in speaking these things with us, but little further. Then the force field of inscrutability is raised against the prying gaze of personal questions. Tell us more. Tell us more what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul. Paul would never have gone on the first century equivalent of the chat show circuit. He and Timothy didn't do the equivalent of selfies. I'll tell you this about myself. No more simply to satisfy your curiosity. But I'll tell you this. I am missing you so much, Timothy. And I'm missing some creature comforts and some mental stimulus. But I do have the Lord with me. I want you to know that. Do your best to come quickly. Come before winter. There was a man called Armand Walker. He was a student at Jefferson Medical College. And in the 1930s, in the 1930s, he heard a famous sermon on this very passage by uh, Dr. Clarence McCartney. The text was, Do your best to get here before winter. The text lingered in his mind as he walked back home. Can that knocking stop, please? After the morning service. And at dinner he said, Please stop the knocking. I'd uh, better write a letter back home to my mother. She's not well. Um, perhaps the winter of her departure has come. And evidently there were things that he should have said to her before that time and had neglected. And this sermon on come before winter really touched his mind. Perhaps there was an apology that he needed to express to her, whatever it was. And so he sat down that afternoon and he wrote his letter. And... Uh, Two days later, he was in college, and a telegram came. And it was about his mother that she was gravely ill, and he left for home immediately. And when he got to his home, his mother was still alive, and she smiled as she saw him come through the door. And under her pillow was a treasured new possession. It was the loving letter that her son had written after that morning service. It cheered her. And it comforted her as she was approaching the valley of the shadow of death. Now many of us, and I'm certainly one of them, have regrets that when loved one died, we weren't there. 
we weren't able to say the things we wanted to say to them. It was an opportunity given that afternoon to write that letter to uh, someone in, in his circle. And it's an afternoon before you. And you ought to think of someone you can write a letter to who perhaps you've had disagreements with them before winter comes, before it's too late, uh, a little word, and do what Paul is desirous of, uh, of Timothy doing here. And then we see also that Paul says, and bring John Mark with you. Because he's helpful to me in my ministry. And that's a beautiful thing. Because from the book of Acts, we know that uh, Paul and John Mark had never hit it off. That uh, there'd been a disagreement between both of them. Paul felt deeply let down that John Mark had not stayed on the Isle of Cyprus on that first missionary journey and built on the work, the pioneer, the ice-cracking work that they had done. And he went home instead of going on with Paul. And so when he came to the second missionary journey then, Paul didn't want to take John Mark with him. Uh, And if it hadn't been for Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who spoke to them both and spoke to Paul, then um, it would have been the termination of that friendship. John Mark is the man who wrote the second gospel. This is the end of Paul's life. And that rift, whosoever's fault it was, had been healed. And that's a lesson. There'd been reconciliation. And friendship restored. And so Paul says to Timothy, come, do your best to come quickly. Come before Christmas, bring John Mark with you. I want to see him just one more time. Oh, he helps me. The need of companionship is especially important because of the people who are no longer helping Paul. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Tychicus had been sent to Ephesus. And if uh, Timothy is coming to Rome then, he's going to be away a year from the congregation in Ephesus, Tychicus is going to be the replacement who will preach and pastor when Timothy is away. And then there's the hurt of Demas, jumping ship. Demas was a follower of the Apostle Paul, and uh, in the letter to Philemon and in the letter to the Colossians, he speaks of him warmly, There's such potential and such leadership. But now he has fallen in love with this present world system. A mighty one has fallen. Perhaps it was the threat of persecution and death. And it pains him. But he's gone to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica had a a very vibrant congregation. So perhaps it was just some personal grievance that he had with Paul. Friends are deserting. When God made Adam, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And he made a companion for Adam. He created Eve. 
God himself has never known aloneness. God the Father has always had God the Son. Always, eternally, that's how God is. And they both had God the Holy Spirit and he has them. There's never been a time when there was no fellowship and no communion and no love in, in God and like Allah. But God has made man unlike himself at the beginning, all alone, and God quickly addresses that need. And he says, this isn't good. I will make a helper that is meet for him. So human friendship is part of the provision that God has for human beings. There is no substitute for it. You admit people into your circle of friendship and you admit them into the formation of your character. Maybe there are people who glory in their loneliness and never welcome another person into the place they live. And that's not good. And Paul was not like that. He knew it was not good for him to be alone. That he needed the stimulus of people with him. And that was particularly so in times of opposition. Alexander the coppersmith, he has done me a great deal of harm and the Lord will repay him for what he's done. You be on your guard because he strongly opposed the message. You know, I've read the two volumes, the wonderful two volumes of the life of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and the, uh, the one volume life of Dr. Cornelius Van Til. And when I completed those books, I realized just how lonely uh, those men were. Um, how underappreciated and neglected they felt they were. They were, felt they were voices speaking into the wilderness. I never had that impression. I thought they were immensely famous and uh, unsuccessful. And I admired them. I never felt that they were walking such a lonely path as they felt. And I would, in my schoolboy-like foolishness and Welsh chatterbox way, I'd debate with him and argue with him. I much regret that now. Uh, he gives a little clue to his appreciation of receiving encouragement when he was first taken ill about 1967. Um, he had cancer and he had a big operation and I wrote to him and uh, said how much we were praying for him and were thankful to God for him. He kept that letter. He kept it. My letter. It's in the uh, Lloyd-Jones archives in the National Library of Wales. People have photocopied it and <laughs> sent a copy of it to me. He appreciated encouragement. He was strengthened by it. He was my role model, the finest preacher I've ever heard by miles. What future regrets some of us are facing because we didn't show more appreciation and affection for people. You only have a few friends in this life. And how you need to nurture those friendships. It's very easy to terminate a friendship. 
It's very easy to take offense, either imaginary or real. Gentle answers still turn wrath away. Be slow to speak. Be slow to speak and swift to hear. You overcome men's evil with your good. So Paul wrote and told Timothy, Oh, I want to see you, Timothy. He needed companionship. Secondly, he needed creature comforts. Verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. So he has a desire for warm clothes. Isn't it a strange thing? Have you thought of that? How strange that request is? Uh, It's strange in a couple of ways. What were the congregation in Rome thinking of? Wasn't there one elder, one brave man? who'd go to the prison and take a blanket to Paul. He writes to Turkey to ask for a cloak. Why this Christian inactivity? If they, in times of great spiritual revival, were as negligent as that in Rome, how negligent we are of basic needs that there are in our circle of friends, in our congregation. Paul asked Timothy to travel for six months, five months, six months, to bring a cloak with him there. And then it's fascinating also because Paul tells the Philippians that he has learned in whatever state he is to be a contented man. And that should be the desire of every Christian concerning our health or our salary, our bodily comforts, our home, or the place in which we live. We are to be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And we show that contentment by always saying to God, Thy will be done. But that doesn't make us fatalists. Paul doesn't say to slaves simply that God has ordained their estate and that they should accept their slavery if they can obtain their freedom. Paul tells them, well, obtain your freedom. And we can improve the condition of ourselves and our families. Um, If we can do it, we've got a duty to do it, to better ourselves. We are to live somewhere between an acceptance of what is God's will for us concerning our finance and our health and our circumstances and our congregation. And then longing that everything changes. That we improve everything. The apostle in this prison cell was content. We know that. Because he writes to the Philippians from a prison cell and he tells them what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether in life or death. He was contented to accept God's will and to be in prison and to suffer for him. If that was God's will he would take it. He was content. He's in prison and it's cold. People on holiday can do a tour of Rome and they can visit the Marmotine prison. I, I've never been to Rome. 
I suppose in one's imagination, it's like visiting the dungeons in the Tower of London, but worse. And so Paul was in some sort of cavern where condemned prisoners were kept before they were brought out to be executed. Little sunlight, it was damp, it was a kind of chill that goes right through that encourages tuberculosis and pneumonia. And uh, Paul, he's aware that he's going to finish his course and he's ready when his heavenly father comes. But he wants to see another winter. He wants to six months for his letter to reach Timothy and six months for Timothy to come and see him. He's, he's thinking that he'll be alive for uh, another year. And he can write letters during that year. And he can talk to the guards he's chained to during that year. And he's not then. He's in, a, in, in a straits between the two. Whether to depart and to go to Christ. And that's much better. Or to stay here and work for the Lord. Now he'd experienced some deliverance. He tells us like Daniel in Babylon. He'd been delivered from the lion's mouth whatever that was. But come before winter and bring the cloak. He must have been very fond of that cloak, mustn't he? Because Timothy had to carry it all the way from Troas. You'd buy a cloak. You would, and I would. The equivalent of a charity shop would have a lot of cloaks then for us to buy, and we'd get a nice one for the Apostle Paul. It says to us, this human being, Paul, was a very practical man. And that dimension of his life was enhanced when he became a Christian. Our human nature, our human desires, our DNA structure, the balance of what we are, our psyche, the real us. We take that into the kingdom of God with us. Here's a man who's written half the New Testament. Here's a man. And there are thousands and thousands of books about his writings in the National Library of Wales. They're there. And still people find there are vast depths to Paul's teaching. Here's a man who has traveled most of the known world. And he's content to accept whatever God's will is for him. And he's concerned about the coat. And God, the Holy Spirit, is concerned about his coat, or the Holy Spirit wouldn't have inspired this sentence. He doesn't want him to be freezing and coughing there in prison. It's saying to us, then, that true godliness and real spirituality have a practical dimension to them. That the greatest blessing after grace is common sense. Are you thinking of going to Kenya? Well, take some malaria tablets with you. Don't let the tap water there enter your mouth. Even when you brush your teeth, use bottled water. When you shake hands with everyone after the close of the morning service, wash your hands before you eat. Christianity is practical. The third thing that we see here is that Paul had the need of intellectual stimulus. He says to Timothy, verse 13, when you come, bring my scrolls, especially 
the parchments. And that's fascinating, isn't it? He may be chained to a board soldier. They have four-hour shifts and they undo the lock and the next man comes in and leaves him and the new man turns and he says to him, do you know any dirty jokes? And that's the atmosphere in which Paul was spending these last months of his life. And he's concerned about books. And he's concerned about parchments. Uh, maybe codices. Codices were pieces of parchment that were bound together like a book. And what did they contain? <clears throat> well, some have conjectured that they contained Greek philosophy. I don't think so. And others that they, uh, the artsy types say that it was <clears throat> books about literature and, uh, and poetry and Greek drama. And that's doubtful. So maybe they were early versions of Christian preaching. Maybe they were notebooks in which sayings of Jesus had been collected. There would be certainly the Old Testament scriptures, but the whole 39 books of the Old Testament, they would be vast. They would be a, a huge pile of scrolls and, uh, and papyri. So bring some scriptures. Paul wants some scriptures with him. When he was arrested, he didn't have time to pick them up. Or maybe he is referring to the certificate of Roman citizenship that was so important to him. Bring them to me. What a preacher then. That even at the end of his life, he wants to exercise his mind concerning the word of God. So... Calvin speaks about the madness of the fanatics who despise books and condemn all reading and boast only of their own private inspirations. Spurgeon, you know the great sermon, I read it to you. Even apostle must read. Some of our very ultra-Calvinistic brethren think that a minister who reads books and studies his sermons must be a very deplorable specimen of a preacher. A man who comes up into the pulpit, professes to take his text on the spot, and spouts any quantity of nonsense is the idol of many. If he'll speak without premeditation or pretend to do so, and never produce what they call a dish of dead men's bones, oh, that is the preacher. How rebuked they are by the apostle. He's inspired. He wants books. He's been preaching for 30 years. He wants books. He's seen the Lord Jesus. He wants books. He's had a wider experience than most men. He wants books. He's been caught up to the third heaven and seen sights and heard words it's unlawful for man to utter. Yet he wants books. He's written a major part of the New Testament. Yet he wants books. And he speaks to Timothy and he says, When you come, bring books. He says to Timothy, give yourself to reading. So, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us this morning from this section of his word? He's saying three things. When our spirit is lonely, we need friends, and so we give friendship. We're on the lookout for people we can give friendship to. Secondly, when our body is cold, we need clothing. Thirdly, when our mind is bored, we need reading matter. 
And the biggest lesson then is that man is never, for one moment, denaturalized by grace. We dare not deny our humanity or our frailty or pretend that we're made of anything else but dust. Here's a letter by uh, the greatest English reformer, the Luther of England, William Tyndale. He's awaiting death in a prison in Belgium. And he writes from his prison cell in Villevorde to the Marquis of Bergen, the governor of the jail, where he's being held captive. He's soon going to be taken out and strangled and his body burned. It is 1,500 years later than this letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And Tyndale wrote, I entreat your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus that if I must remain here for the winter, you would beg the commissary to be so kind as to send me from the things of mine which he has a warmer cap. I feel the cold painfully in my head, also a warmer cloak, for the cloak I have is very thin. He has a woolen shirt of mine, if he will also send it. But most of all, my Hebrew Bible, grammar and vocabulary, that I may spend my time in that pursuit. I'm stirred <laughs> reading such words. What a price Tyndale paid that the ploughboy might have the Bible in his own language. Fourthly, the greatest need is for the Lord and his grace to be with us. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians as I speak to you, and they're not in a congregation, they're in prison with a lot of felons, incarcerated in concentration camps, in gulags, in jails all over the world. They are really, at this moment, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, for following Christ. They are forbidden any visitors. No books can be taken to them. No warm clothes can be sent to them. But the one thing that can never be taken from them is what Paul desires for Timothy here. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Our Lord, the Lord who was in Galilee and in the upper room, the same Jesus with the same personality and the same tone of voice and the same patience and the same tenderness and holiness but now with more awesome power and glory is with Timothy as he is with Paul. The lamb in his passion is now the lion in his resurrection. And uh, may he be the one with Timothy's spirit operating there daily. When Timothy wakes up, he appropriates the spirit of the Lord and he's energized in the things he does in what he says, how he uses his time, what he writes, how he deals with people, friends and enemies. The Lord's Spirit with him. Pastor Sandor of Romania was imprisoned in the 1950s and he was kept in an overcrowded cell and he longed for just a time of privacy. That he could be with himself and the Lord. And that they could have some time together. He helped one day uh, um, an underprivileged uh, poor brother and uh, the prison authorities frowned on it and he was put in an underground cell which he couldn't stand. And there he was kept for two weeks. 
unbearable heat, no sanitation, minimal food and drink. And he was initially despairing and confused. And then he said, what did I pray for? That the Lord would give me a time with him. And he welcomed the Lord's presence there. And he spoke to the Lord often. And he brought out his needs and the needs of his family and the church and the country he loved. And he had two helpful weeks. And he looked back and thanked God that that had happened. The real protecting, transforming, faith-enriching, holiness-developing, wisdom-granting, preaching, emboldening presence that sustains Timothy and enables him to stand alone in Asia Minor. And that's what Timothy must have. That's what you must have and I must have. We must have the Lord with us. This week, Monday morning, we must have the Lord with us. Yes, we want warmth and uh, companionship and we want books, but more than all that, we must have the presence of the Lord with our spirits. You know, yes, um, a, new, a new preacher and uh, a new voice and uh, a new building and uh, new facilities and uh, uh, growth and a new music program and all of that. That's on one hand. And then on the other hand, the presence of the Lord with us. And what do you want? What's your priority? Okay, uh, you can have them both. But what do you want most of all? What do you realize you've got to have? Oh, you'll have men, just men. You must have the Lord, you must have Him, His Spirit with you and then there'll be more frontline praying in our prayer meetings asking for things that will hurt Satan and break his power over others in the church asking Jesus for grace to love and care for others and become more like him. If the Lord is with us, he will be savingly active. The children will come to know him. People will be drawn. He will be the magnet that will bring people here. If the Lord is with us, we won't be bothered about the activities of Philemon and, uh, and Hymenaeus and their denial of the gospel. We won't be bothered with Alexander the coppersmith and the hatred that he has for the gospel, those things won't, won't trouble us so much if the Lord is with us. Richard Vermbrand was uh, suffering under the totalitarian regime in, in Romania. And the top man in the uh, secretariat in all of Romania, with seemingly limitless power, was a man called Vasile Lukakio. Lukakio. And soon Wurmbrand was arrested and one day he was in a crowded cell and an official came and, with his clipboard and, and asked them what they were in prison for. Why are you here? The man said, I slandered Vasile Lukakio. 
And he asked the next man, and the man said, what did you do? I supported Vasile La Kakiu, he said. And he came to the third man, and he said, and why are you here? And he said, I am Vasile La Kakiu. You see, only the Lord Jesus reigns forever. Only Jesus Christ. Prime ministers come and go. American presidents come and go. Leaders of Russia come and go. Regimes rise and fall. We've seen it in our lifetime. That's the political picture. It's of change and decay in all around we see. But here is one who changes not. Who is the eternal one. And he by his spirit can come and visit us and bless us and help us and take us to be with himself. You know, that, that. I want him. Most of all, I must have him. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now, we pray, and to do us good. Thank you for the creature comforts we know that all of us have got blankets and coats and books in abundance. Thank you, Lord, that many of us have friends. Oh, that all had helpful friendships and loneliness was a thing of the past. Do bless us as men and women with a caring spirit for one another, we pray. Hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.